wretch like me. Take your Bibles to one of the most, it's called the forbidden, it's called the forbidden chapter of the Old Testament, the forbidden passage, the forbidden chapter to the Jews, especially Orthodox Jews. But to almost all Jews, they're, they're discouraged on reading Isaiah 53. They're forbidden as an Orthodox Jew. And told not to do it. And you can you will almost not meet a Jew, whether they be a Reformed Jew, a Conservative Jew, or an Orthodox Jew. You'll not meet a you'll hardly meet a Jew that's read Isaiah 53. So how do you win a Jew to Christ? You take him Isaiah 53. First place, familiarize them with Isaiah 53. Now I'm only going to deal with one phrase. I have preached around Isaiah 53 on various. I I didn't count. But I suppose in the last 30 years, I've probably preached five, six different sermons, all different, dealing with a different aspect, a different facet of this chapter, because this chapter is chucked full of truth. Let me uh, just go in verse 1 through 3, settling in verse 3. Who hath believed our report, and whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form. Or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, I preached on why I believe Jesus was ugly. That's the title of it. But I'm not doing that today, but it was based on what this verse 2 said. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He has no form nor comeliness. I do not believe Jesus was a handsome, well built, individual that was handsome and good-looking and somebody you'd want to look at. It, the Bible says no. But that's not what we're speaking about. In verse 3, he is despised and rejected of man. The phrase, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about Jesus and sorrow. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Father, help us in this few moments. Uh, break through the darkness, uh, the, the resistance that we have naturally to the things of God, and open the minds and the hearts. And if, as, as the Bible says, open the understanding uh, to what you want us to hear and know today. In Jesus' name, amen. Why was Jesus considered a man of sorrows? That phrase, a man of sorrows. Why would Jesus Christ be considered a man of sorrows? He, the exact, the, this exact phrase only occurs once in the, in the whole Bible. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is macabre. And I know that's transliterated oftentimes when people say they're a little down or they have some, they have some sorrow, they have a macabre, a spirit of macabre. That's actually the Hebrew word. It means anguish, a spirit of affliction, a spirit of grief, a spirit of pain, or a spirit of sorrow. I, I'm not saying Jesus uh, never laughed. 
Um, in a small way, I believe Paul suffered like this. In Romans chapter 9, verse 2, Paul says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Continual sorrow in my heart. Have you ever had anything that come into your life so heavy, so oppressive, so tragic, so catastrophic, so long, impactive, that the agony at the first part of it was almost beyond bearing. But as time played, maybe it lasted two months, maybe it lasted two years, maybe it lasted five years. I've seen a number of people die. A number of married couples lose their mate. I've seen some married couples, uh, especially men. Men die before women nine out of ten times. One time we had 26 widows here to gospel. 26 widows, brother. One widower. One. And he didn't last. He got married. <laughs> Amen. Because we men, this brother's a widower. We don't, and this brother's a widower. We don't, like, we don't do too well alone most of the time. You women seem to thrive alone. Uh, you, you, there's a sermon there. I, I'm treating my wife in such a way that when I die, it's party time. I'm finally free from him. I mean, but uh, uh, I've had parent. I've had parents come and share with me that their children are wayward that they've gone astray, that they become agnostics, they become homosexuals, they become lesbians. I've heard it all. I've had parents come to me and say, I have continual sorrow in my heart. Just like Paul said here. It doesn't go away. It does get less. Humans, God has given us a, a an act of mercy, a mechanism that as time goes and distances you from the event that created the sorrow, you remember the sorrow, the sorrow's there, but it's not as sharp. I mean, I, the longest I've heard a widow grieve for her husband, and I mean really grieve, and I thought she was going to pine herself away to death, was Mrs. Uh, Perkins, I think it was, or was it? Pickens? Oh, brother. Forgot the girl's last name now. But anyway, she grieved and grieved and grieved and grieved and grieved. Most, most widows grieve pretty hard a year. And then it begins to, begins to fade out after the second year, and they get better, and they start smiling and laughing again the third year. Fourth year, they're taking cruises. You guys were just getting too serious. <laughs> this girl, every time I saw her, even four years after her husband died, she would weep, just immediately began to weep when I mentioned him. And uh, I said, girl, you can't keep this up. You've got to let this go. And, and it taught me a lesson. She said, he treated me so well. And I noted, I better not do that. 
But you, many, how many in here have lost a mom and, mom and, you've lost mom and dad? Raise your hand. Look at that. See your hands. How many in here have lost a child in death? Wow. How many in here have had a child paralyzed or come down with a, with a debilitating problem? Some of you. It's less. Or maybe going through the horror, and don't raise your hand for this, going through the horror of divorce. They say divorce is like losing a loved one. It's like death. or Actually, it's worse because sometimes it's, it's so fresh. But this is usually a cause of deep sorrow, but it will lighten over the months. But not for Jesus. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows. Sorrows were something he dealt with from his consciousness till his death. Till he said, it is finished. Uh, he dealt with being sorrowful. He was a man of sorrows. Uh, it was not the exception for Jesus to be sorrowful. It was the rule. Why? I want to list for you this morning three major reasons that I could that I believe that God helped me to come up with three major reasons why Jesus was a man of sorrows, as, as Isaiah 53 says he was. First, because he knew what heaven was like. You remember where he came from, right? The glory of the Father. Now, some of you live in nice homes, but it took you a while to get there. You didn't get that nice home when you were in your 20s. You didn't get that nice home when you were in your 30s. You finally got your dream home, you know, maybe in your 40s, 50s. You finally got into that home. But now you're getting old. There's no kids at the house. You're having a harder time keeping it clean. The girl that's cleaning it's stealing from you. Uh, you're upset about people in your house. And so you finally go and you say, let's downsize. I can tell you one thing, it's a lot easier going this way than this way. And you move into that little small cracker box that you started. See, Jesus had the glory of heaven, the beauty of perfection as God. And he came down to this old world. John chapter 17, verse 5 says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. See, I'm not making this up. John 17, 24 says, Father, I will that thou also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Aren't you glad for that prayer? That they, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Jesus was preexistent as God before the world was formed. In 1 Peter 1.20 it says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus is the invisible image of a visible God. He, in Colossians 1.15 it says, Who is the image of the invisible God? For by him were all things created. That means in Genesis 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's talking about Jesus. Uh, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That pretty well covers it, right? Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him 
and for him, and this is the clincher in verse 17 of Colossians chapter 1, he is before all things. And by him, all things consist, hold together. It's a lot harder to know something is good and to give it up rather than to never experience it, experience it and look forward to it. I've never been to heaven. I look forward to heaven. But I'll guarantee you, you've never seen a more sorrowful individual than if God let me go to heaven for five minutes and then made me come back here. Woo! I'd probably walk around and go, I can't stand it anymore. The Bible said Jesus was a man of sorrows. Why? Well, number one, he knew the peace of heaven. He knew the joy of heaven, the cheerfulness of heaven, the unity of heaven, the harmony of heaven, the fulfillment of heaven. And then he came, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found as a man, he humbled himself. Yeah, he did. He humbled himself. Big time humbled himself. Came to this old sin-cursed earth full of sorrows, death, and decay everywhere. Uh, he knew the fullness of joy spoken about uh, by the psalmist in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, where it says, In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus knew about that. And then he came down here to this old stinky place. See, what you don't understand, God's got a good smeller. I took a group of people. I'm quite the tour guide. I took a group of our folks here to Haiti. They said, you want to go to Haiti? I said, let's go. So we went to Haiti. And I remember when we got off in uh, Port, uh, no, Capetian Airport. We got off of Capetian Airport, and we got out of the plane, and the one woman, not everybody smells well. My wife can't hardly smell at all. I can smell everything. It's a curse. It's a blessing. You know what I mean? I'm glad she can't smell. It's made our marriage better. But this old this woman got off of the, this, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'm stinky. But uh, this woman got off of the, of the plane, and she's like, oh, you know women are so, they don't do this like man, you know. They're like, oh, 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 oh. And she, had, she got her Kleenex out. Oh, 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 I can't. And she started crying on me hysterically. I said, what? Well, we just got here. By the way, the plane, I, I made it real clear on my tour, the plane came on Tuesday and left on Tuesday, the next one. That if you broke an arm, broke a leg, had, had brain surgery, you did not get to go home to America until next Tuesday. Are you get it? You still want to go? Yeah, preacher, we want to go. Okay. So she looks at us and says, I want to go home. Well, she had some money. She was used to getting her own way as many of the women are. I know it's the truth. It's hard to take. I didn't say it'd be easy to be a gospel. Oh, she says to her husband, I'll pay anything, but you get me out of here. And he looked at her and he said, Hon, we can't go. We can't go next Tuesday. There is no plane flying in and out of here till Tuesday. She said, I don't care what it costs, I want you to find a way to get me out of here. And he said, I'm sorry, but you're going to be here for the next week. 
And she looked at me, and she said, you get me out of here. And I said, you're going to be here for the next week. I could tell that woman hadn't heard no much. She cried three days, three days. Beautiful thing about the nose is, after smelling, and I mean it smelled like refuse because their, their sewage was on top of the ground and it, was, it did smell like refuse. Uh, and after three days, you don't smell anymore. That's the beautiful thing about being around something long enough, you don't smell it. It's God's mercy. Pretty through in three days, she says, you know, I don't smell anymore. I said, yeah. I knew why, but I wasn't going to tell her. Imagine Jesus coming out of the glories where the fullness of joy was forevermore and the pleasures on, on, and coming down to this old, this old stinky world. You say, it ain't stinky. Don't bathe for a few days. See what happens. Are you kidding? Everything stinks here. Everything you look at is rotten. I mean, the trees are rotten. I mean, the, everything's going bad. Everything's second law of thermodynamics. Everything's dying. And I mean, it is, a, it is a land of smell. Imagine Jesus walking in, in a perfect environment like that for eternity and then coming down to this old world. Brother, when the Bible says that he humbled himself, we don't get it. How he humbled himself. He humbled himself. The second reason I believe that he was a man of sorrows is because he knew the wickednesses of men's hearts. And that continually caused him sorrow. See, I can look at you this morning and I don't know what you're thinking. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm glad I don't know what you're thinking. And men, aren't you glad that you don't know what your wife's thinking? I mean, you wouldn't stay married I mean, you, praise God, we can't hear each other's thoughts. Amen? I have thought some really tough stuff. If you think I've spoken tough stuff, you ought to hear what I'm thinking. And I mean, I've had to hold my, I mean, once in a while they slip out, and I'm going, oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. How many ever had that happen? You know I mean? You shouldn't have said that. But how many things have you thought you thank God you didn't say, Right? But imagine Jesus walking among men, knowing their thoughts. How you say, Brother Bill, you're making it up. Well, let's go to the Bible. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 says, and Jesus knew their thoughts. Luke chapter 6, verse 8 says, and he knew their thoughts. John chapter 2, verse 25 said, he knew, that he knew what was in man. It makes sense to me that as God manifests in the flesh, uh, who had given up the glories of his former state, and this God manifests in the flesh, had, had not given up who he was. He was still God. He was all man, but he was all God. Because the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16, if you've got a King James Bible, it says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And that is an accurate translation to the received text. God was manifest in the flesh. God knows the very intents and the thoughts of men's hearts. Revelation chapter 2 verse 23 says, I am he which searcheth the reins, that's the mind, and the hearts. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 maybe is as, 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 uh, as clear anywhere. It says, neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in his sight, but all 
things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's as clear as you could say something, that God sees everything. He knows the very thoughts of your heart. He not only knows your thoughts and your actions and your, and your words and, your, and all that other, he knows your intentions. Now, if you knew that, wouldn't that disgust you? Wouldn't that make you sorrowful? At just what people were thinking? What their intentions were? In, in Matthew chapter 12, he verbalizes in Matthew, in, in Matthew 12, 34, he says, Oh, generation of vipers. Sometimes I think, man, he was a tough preacher. Jesus was one tough preacher. I mean, I don't think I could get, I think I can get away with a lot here at the gospel, but there's a few things I know that I wouldn't be able to get away with. If I got up here and started calling you people a bunch of vipers, because you're not, because you're born-again Christians, you understand who he was talking to, people that said they were religious and said they were followers of God that were not. So I'd have never have a reason to say that. But as he's preaching to these unsaved people, these, in many cases, hypocrites, he's calling them vipers. And he says, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Jesus knew that more than anybody. He heard what they were thinking. He heard the wickedness that was coming in their heart and the, and the things that they were. He said, no wonder you speak evil. You think evil. Matthew 23, 33 says, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? In Matthew 17, 17, he says, you're a faithless and perverse generation. Matthew 23, 13, he calls them hypocrites. His vocabulary referring to men indicated the ultimate disgust and repulsion at their behavior and their innermost thinking. So here he is, a man who knew no sin, who did no sin, who thought no sin, who had no perverse actions in his life. Imagine this oppressive cloud hanging around him day after day after day as he walks among men feeling like an alien, a stranger, a pilgrim, a traveler that's come to some distant alien far country. Is it focusing in on you? Why, he was a man of sorrows. He'd been to heaven and he had come here. And when he got here, he knew what was here. And every day he couldn't escape it. Even his own apostles, his own disciples, which he handpicked, over and over he has to rebuke him. He tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Surely Jesus was homesick, and his soul was filled continually with longing just for a moment of relief. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The third reason I give for this phrase in Isaiah 53 is because Jesus, above everyone else, above anybody that come before him, above Moses, above Abraham, above Elijah, above Elisha, above all the prophets that had ever come, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, any of them, he knew more than anyone. Why? Because he was God manifest in the flesh. He knew of hell's reality. It's statistically true that Jesus spoke more of hell than he did heaven. 
Jesus came to die on the old rugged cross and pay for your sin, my sin, so that I wouldn't have to go to where? Purgatory? No. Hell. Hell. See, hell's not manufactured by people. Hell's not a doctrine that came, was brought up later on after Jesus was uh, resurrected and went back to heaven. Hell is a doctrine that he emphasized in his preaching. If you go to Mark chapter 9, I'm not going to, he says in there, it'd be better to cut your hand off, better to cut your foot off, better to pluck your eyes out if your foot or if your hand or if your eye caused you to go to a place uh, uh, called hell where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. He said it would be better to lose those things now, that's, that's just memberment we're talking about. It would be better to go through the horror of this memberment on this side than it would be to be cast over into that side, the place called hell, and, and suffer an eternal anguish of gloom and despair and agony and loneliness and suffering and duration. Why? He above anyone else knew what it was. See, people want to believe Jesus when he talks about heaven. They want to believe him. You want to say, "Woo, wonderful, but what do you believe him when he talks about hell? See, if you believe what Jesus says about heaven, you have to believe what he says about hell. And nobody in the Bible says any more specificity about hell than Jesus does. I have, When I first looked through that, I go, whoa. I've heard people tell me God's too loving for there to be a hell. Then what are you trying to tell? Who was Jesus and who was he? Because if you're saying there can't be a hell, then Jesus was a liar. And if he was a liar, he couldn't have been the Savior. And if he wasn't the Savior, you're still dead and in your sins. Wow. Imagine Jesus knowing that there's a hell, realizing that men and women who he's walking among that most of them are going to go there. You say, well, how, Bill, where do you get most of them? He says, because he said, narrow is the way, and few enter into life. He said, people going to hell, broad is the way, and many be there that go in. It's Jesus who said that there would be Fewer go to heaven than there would be to go to hell. Imagine him walking among men. Doesn't it bother you some? Doesn't it bother you that the waitress gives you your food at the restaurant? If she doesn't trust Christ as a Savior, she's going to have to learn the hard way and spend eternity in hell. Doesn't it bother you that the neighbor that lives beside you who has rejected God or doesn't believe that he is, maybe he's an agnostic or something, someday he's going to realize better, and when it's too late, going to find out that he's going to spend eternity in hell. It bothers me. I realize sometimes you can harden your heart to it, and you can, you can say, okay, you know, I'm not going to think on that area. But, God, but Jesus is God couldn't do that. We have the ability to shield ourselves somewhat, but he was not able to do that. He knew the very thoughts. He saw the sin. He smelled it. He was among it, coming from heaven, having left the glories of heaven, had known what that was, 
coming among men, seeing what they thought, knowing their intentions, and then knowing more than that, that if they didn't turn to God in repentance and faith in what he was getting ready to do on Calvary, that they would have to spend eternity paying for their own sin. Let me tell you, hell is a motivator to get saved. I believe it is at the end of Jude, it says, some of you saved by compassion. That's good. But he says, some of you saved by fear. I know when I got saved, I heard I just had heard a whole Sunday school lesson on hell. My, 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 my Sunday school teacher did a whole Sunday school lesson on what the Bible taught about hell. And at the end of that thing, I went home and told my mom and dad, as they were in the front seat of the car, 1959 Chevy, if I remember. No, it was a 57. I remember going to saying, I need to get saved. And she said, why do you feel that way? I said, because if I don't get saved, I'm going to hell. Now I wasn't very old, but I can tell you already I had lied, I had cheated, I had accused my brothers of stuff that they didn't do, I had smoked on top of the chicken house, I had done all kinds of wild and crazy stuff. See, James said if you, if you disobey the law on one point, you're guilty of all. How many times do you have to steal to be a thief? How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? How many times do you have to hate someone to have committed murder in your heart? How many times do you have to lust on a woman to commit adultery? You know the answer, don't you? How many times do you have to take God's name in vain to be a blasphemer? The truth is, if you examine yourself against beside those Ten Commandments, you're going to find yourself a sinner, a sinner, a sinner, a violator, a violator, a violator, a violator. All of us under the examination of the law, are guilty before God. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They've all gone astray. Everyone gone to his own way. The Lord hath laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Woo! Out of Isaiah 53, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. There is no excuse for anyone in the sound of my voice of going to hell. There's no excuse. Don't miss Jesus. You need a Savior, brother. Sister, you need a Savior. You need someone to pay for your sins. You say, well, I'm going to try to pay for them by doing good. Now, no matter if you started doing good from this day forward, you couldn't undo all the bad you did. It'd still be there. And Jesus Christ said that if you, the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. There ain't no better news than that you've ever been told. The blood of Jesus Christ, if you'll put your faith in him, for by grace are you saved through faith. Through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. I, I think it's Romans 4, 5 says, To him that worketh not, but believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Place your childlike faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as your sin bearer. The Bible says by faith, he'll accept that little bit of faith you got 
and he'll birth you into his family. And the man of sorrows, the man acquainted with grief, did it because he loved you. That's what motivated this whole thing. He came and endured all he had in 33 years. He endured this old world. Why? Because he loved us. He wants you to be saved. I hope you're saved today. I hope you know Christ. And if you know him, I hope you go around telling everybody you can, you know Jesus, would you like to know him? Here's something about God. Pass gospel tracts out. Tell them every year. Why? Because this man of sorrows and acquainted with grief died for you, came for you, endured it for you. This woman, but going back to Haiti, this woman who, after the third day, quit smelling all the bad smell, had a great time down in Haiti. We had a great time. Got to see the needs of the people. Got to understand well, how we could help them. Came back to the United States and, and, and helped those folks to know Christ and to be able to spread the gospel. Endured the trouble so that there could be some good. That's what Jesus did for us. I hope you'll be saved today. Father, we pray the name above every name that you'd explain this better than I could and better than I did. I pray the Father that the Spirit of God would take what's been said and use it. Father, I've tried to base everything I've spoke here this morning, spoken on the very Word of God. I pray that there could be a communication that only thy Spirit can do to make clear. There's someone in this room without Christ. They say, today's the day. I'm going to trust Christ. None of us know what we have tomorrow. None of us know whether we're going to live to the time we think. None of us know. We, we don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon. Father, help them. Help we as Christians to be sober-minded, as the Bible said. Serious-minded about living for God. Do we not flip away this time that we've been given, this thing called life, that we'd be serious-minded, put our hands to the plow, and do your will. Father, help us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. If you'd like to know more about Jesus and the subject preached on, please contact us at gospel at mygbcs.com or call us at 239-947-1285. God bless.